Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And this is coming out of, if you've been here like most of you have these last Sunday nights, this is coming out of a number of verses and discussion about sin. And then Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's God's word for us tonight. A guy by the name of John Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R, graduated from Wheaton College in 1969. Shortly after that, he recorded some songs in Chicago that became a Christian acoustic rock record called The Cold Cathedral. And it's considered the very first album in what became the contemporary Christian music genre. He once wrote something uh, kind of interesting, I find, and helpful about sin. And I think it helps us as we're making our way through this section on sin at the beginning of Romans because we might very well think that sin is a very depressing topic. Why didn't our pastors just cover this section in one sermon instead of now? I've been counting, it's four. We're, we're pretty bright people. We get the picture. Sin is bad. The situation is grim. We need Jesus We're saved people in the church. Why can't we just sort of pass over this dire section if we're saved? Well, what Fisher wrote helps us answer why we can't just ignore sin, even as believers. He wrote this, There is something terribly right about realizing that our struggle with sin is in many ways similar to an alcoholic struggle with drinking. It's never over. How often I find myself talking about sin in the past tense as if being a sinner is something I'm beyond. It's a page turned in the book of my life, but sin is like alcoholism. Sinners are never cured. They simply decide to stop sinning, and it's a daily decision. And I don't know about every single little phrase there, but there's a lot of truth in there that's helpful. Jesus saves us. We are washed clean in God's sight. We're given the robes of Christ's righteousness to wear. But sin will continue to be a daily struggle until we reach glory and are made perfect. 
And so we can't ignore it. We must continue to be vigilant and aware. Not just non-Christians need to hear about sin. Christians do too. I think we can look at our verses tonight as a summary of sorts of everything Paul has said up to now, from the middle of chapter 1 till now. And I, I think he hints at that when he says, what shall we conclude then? In this summary, in this conclusion to the sin section, Paul has some important things yet to say to us about sin. First of all, we find here, it's universally inclusive. And this is verse 9. And and this is what Paul has been telling us. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Not only the pagan peoples who don't know the true God, but also God's special people up to the time of Christ, the people of Israel. Not only people who live their lives in obvious immorality and debauchery, but also people who live a decently moral life. Prostitutes are under sin. And so are Sunday school children. All are under sin. All means all. Sin includes everybody. That doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as everyone else. As Tim Keller says, it means everyone's legal condition before God is the same. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about sin includes everybody. We are all lost, and there are no different degrees of lostness. And and Keller uses this. Keller had a lot of really helpful things to say about these verses tonight in general that I'm going to be sharing. But he says this, Imagine three people trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan. One of the people can't swim at all, and pretty much as soon as he gets to water that's out of his depth, he drowns. The next person is a weak swimmer. She makes it maybe 60 feet out or so, And then she drowns. The next person is a championship swimmer. After 30 miles or so, he's struggling. At 40 miles, he drowns. Is any one of those swimmers more drowned than the other one? No. It doesn't matter at all which one swam the farthest. None got near the goal. They are all dead. And, and that's the comparison with what Paul is saying. He's not saying, we're, we're talking about the, the pervasiveness of sin. Includes every, we're not saying all sin is equal in the world. No, some sin has much greater impact than other sin and is way more harmful than others. He doesn't say every person is as sinful as the next. There, there may be differences in people and differences in sin. But for salvation, that makes no difference. As far as salvation goes, we're all in the same situation. There's no reason for anyone to be proud. Jew, Gentile, religious people trusting in their morality, non-religious people trusting in their intellect or engaging in sensuality, none of them come even close to reaching Japan. None has the righteousness God requires. None comes close to salvation. All are completely and totally and equally lost. And in our first verse 9, that's what Paul is reiterating for us. A second piece to Paul's summary of sin, it's 
extensively pervasive. And this is verse 10 through 12. Kind of looks like poetry there. It's quoting a number of Old Testament texts. And Keller finds that many effects of sin are listed in these verses. And he has some helpful things to say about some. And we see, and we're just going to go through them. We see in verse 10 that we are all guilty and condemned. No one is righteous. That's about our legal standing before God, who is the judge of all mankind. Nothing we do or say can change that reality. Just like if we've committed a crime and we're standing afterwards in the courtroom, there's nothing after the fact that can be done to change the reality that we're guilty. Our minds are impacted by sin. And that's the beginning of verse 11. The core of our being is twisted and corrupted by sin. And a piece of the core of who we are is our minds. We don't understand God's truth when we're stuck in sin. Our understanding is darkened. We are ignorant. We are in denial. We're blind to the light of God's word. Our brains don't compute data the way they should about God and about sin and about ourselves and how that how it all works together. Our mind is impacted. Our motives are impacted. That's the end of verse 11. No one seeks God. None of us really want to find him. People can run and hide from him in all sorts of ways. Outright sinful lifestyles. And and people can run and hide from God even in being religious and doing good deeds. Our wills are affected. That's verse 12. All have turned away. Reminds us of famous verse, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And there's a willfulness about our wandering. It's not just wandering from God, according to Scripture. It's a willful turning. It's not like sometimes we kind of get off the trail without Jesus when we're in sin. We're, on a, we're walking a different path altogether. Verses 13 and 14, our tongues are impacted. And the picture is an open grave to describe what comes out of our throats. Our words are like dead bodies. We use our tongues to protect our own interests and to damage the interests and reputation of others. Sin affects our speech. And it impacts our relationships. That's verses 15 through 17. We read, We're swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery mark our ways. The way of peace we do not know. We're after each other's blood. Sometimes people are literally after someone else's blood. More often than not, not literally, but it's what's in our heart that matters, says Jesus. We get angry with other people. We get jealous of other people. We covet their house and their spouse and their car and their children, their health and their wealth and their position. We can't live in peace with one another. Our relationships are affected. And finally, sin affects our relationship to God. And this summarizes all of it. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Verse 18. Fear in the Bible does not mean cringing 
and fear of punishment. Awe is more an, an attitude of fear is more an attitude of awe and respect and, and a trembling joy before the greatness of God. That's what people are lacking. Psalm 16, verse 8 gets at that idea where it says, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, I live my life keeping the greatness of my God always in front of me. I am always thinking of his glory and his love and his power, and I let who he is control me at all times. I live in light of him. But because of sin, there is no fear of God before our eyes. We do not set the Lord always before us. And and so Paul is showing us, just hitting it verse after verse, he's showing us how incredibly pervasive sin is. It impacts everything about us that we can think of, our minds, our motives, our wills, our tongues, our relationships with others, and our relationship with God. Was Paul having a really bad day and exaggerating because he was grumpy? Is all of this really true? Is it so bad? We might question some of what he says, so I want to take a closer look at just a couple of these areas. And one is verse 11, where Paul says, no one seeks God. Come on. Willow Creek and that, that church and its founder, Pastor Bill Hybels, made the idea of seekers famous in Christian circles. The idea that people who aren't believers are seeking, and, and we have to help them find. Many non-Christians who don't go to church pray sometimes. Many of them think hard about life or seem to be searching for meaning. And then you think of all those devout people of all the other world religions. No one seeks God that seems wrong based on our experience. But now Paul isn't saying no one seeks spiritual blessing. He's not saying no one seeks an answer to prayer. He's not saying no one wants spiritual peace. People do seek all of those things, I think. What he's saying is no one on their own truly seeks God. To seek God is to want to know the true God, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, and to live for Him. Someone might have problems in their life and want help. Someone might realize they need forgiveness from their mistakes. Someone might realize they need to deal with their anxiety or they might need wisdom for their future and for decisions in their life or that they might, they might realize they need something to fill their emptiness. But seeking all of that is not the same thing as seeking and knowing our holy and sovereign God. People may be seeking what God brings and gives, but they're not seeking Him. And that's one of the things that sin does. People want 
blessings from God, but without God. But on our own, we don't seek Him, and we don't want to give Him total control of our lives and future. And so indeed, I think Paul is right, there is no one who seeks God. Maybe seeking other things, maybe seeking what we would call blessings that we know originally originate from God, but there is no one, no one who is seeking God, as Paul says. We read also that no one does good, which is also maybe a weird thing to say. And it also makes us wonder if Paul is going just a little too far, just a little crabby or something when he wrote this tough section. Because it seems that people do many good things. People give to charities. I've seen people let someone with just a couple groceries go ahead of them at the cash register. I've seen people who are really good neighbors who I don't think they go to church, but they're great neighbors. But then we have to remember what kind of goodness Paul is talking about. And his focus is in our relationship to God and whether our goodness can fix that broken relationship. Whether someone can establish a righteousness of their own. And Paul is teaching that our good deeds cannot do anything to get us saved. And in fact, they make it worse. And the Bible sees a truly good deed as being good in form and in motive. A good deed is good on the outside, what you see, but also on the inside, in the heart. Why would you help a lady cross the street? An outwardly good deed, the form of that might look good, but there's any number of possibilities as far as what's going on in the inside. Someone could want to help a lady cross the street to rob her because that side of the street is darker than the other side and they could probably get away with it. Or you could be hoping that she gives you some money in gratitude. You could see a couple of your friends down the block and do it so that they are impressed with you. So there's the good deed on the outside, but it's got to go along with what's on the inside. That's what the Bible tells us again and again, it's all about God cares about the heart. The Bible says that what's on the inside, apart from Christ, it's never totally pure. Good deeds in God's sight are always done for His glory. It's who we're serving in our hearts that matters, not how we're serving with our hands on the outside. Without faith in Jesus, Good deeds are not truly done for God, but in the end, they're done for ourselves. And so they are not truly good. If you think about it, a main difference between a, a, a Christian and just sort of a, an outwardly religious person is not just in what we believe about our sins but what we believe about good deeds. Both can be sorry about their sins and mistakes, but only the Christian will also repent of wrongly motivated good works too. 
famous preacher George Whitefield says, our best duties are as so many splendid sins. You must not only be made sick of your sin, but you must be sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. And that all leaves us with a final thought And this is verses 19 and 20. Sin is universally inclusive. It reaches everybody. No one is left out. It is extensively pervasive. It reaches every part of us. We can think of every nook and cranny. And finally, sin leaves us breathless. That's, as I said, verses 19 and 20. In the face of the law... God's perfect standard, writes Paul. He says there, every mouth is silenced in the face of all this. Every mouth is silenced. In other words, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to do. We're helpless. We're left breathless, silent. We can't speak. And more than that, we are spiritually speaking dead. Dead in our trespasses. And that's where Paul leaves us in our text today. But of course, God doesn't leave us there for good, does He? Peeking ahead, the next verse says, but now a righteousness from God. And we're given a clue that we'll look into in more detail the next time we're in Romans. We get a clue about how to get out of this mess. And it's from God. If no one is capable of seeking God or doing good, then people who are truly seeking for Him and people who are living for Him must have undergone some kind of change inside him that is caused by God and the Lord's Spirit, not their own strength, not their own spirit. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Each one of us, we consider our own life and path and sin And we realize pretty quickly that we did not seek the Lord out. He drew us to Himself. And we make the decision to put our faith in Him only because He first decides to give us faith. In other words, the full reality of sin that Paul gives us, and he's holding nothing back, it tells us that everything we have And everything we are as believers is by sheer grace given by our loving God in Jesus Christ. May God's word tonight, friends, cause us to throw ourselves, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, to our only hope for rescue, Jesus. Staying close to Him, living gratefully for Him, praising His name for seeking us out and saving us and and changing us, we 
who were once dead in our sins. Amen.